Hi there. Welcome back to The Fray. You're about to listen to episode three in a multi-part series all about the French mathematician Evariste Galois. This particular episode does a deep dive into the history of mathematics, going all the way back to what we know as the beginning. Now, if you want to start off at the beginning and you've missed the first two episodes and you want some continuity, be my guest and start there. If you've already done that, or you don't mind a lack of continuity, I want to welcome you as you join me as we enter the fray. I like to watch the opening credits of movies. It's one of my favorite things about watching a flick. It's where you can learn so much about a film even before it starts. Now, it's not always effective, as some filmmakers, like Clint Eastwood, very rarely make movies with opening credits, which is okay, since Clint basically uses the same crew on almost all his films. When it comes to most movies, though, when you sit down to watch you get an extended listing of names of the people most responsible for making what you're about to see. Now, most people pay little attention to these names past the actors. I mean, even the most ardent film fans probably are only interested in the important titles like director and screenwriter. But when you get past all that and start to pay attention to who does the casting, the production design, who the cinematographer was, who the editor was, That's when the craft of filmmaking, for me, begins in earnest. Now, I've learned that in these crucial jobs, I mean, not limited to that brief list I just rattled off, are the most responsible for making the movies the movies you like. Now, for instance, if you're watching some random action movie and you wonder why it is you like it so much, even though it's silly and has bad acting, it's probably because of the second unit director. Now, they are responsible for all the parts of the film that do not have the leading actors in them. Now, they're not important enough to even get into the opening credits, so a lot of times I have to go search for them at the end of the movie. They're typically one of the first credits that you will see at the end of a movie. Now, they are very important for action movies. So much of those types of movies involve scenes and stunts that are the real stars of the film. Now, you can check it out. Now, think of a couple of your guiltier pleasures, whether it's an old 80s cult classic or a modern big dumb action flick, and check out who edited the film or filmed it or who the second director was. I'm confident that you will find some similar names popping up. In many ways, it is these unheralded positions that create the overall film. And for me, that's where the real fun starts. The credits have become known in my family as a time of no shit. Well, It's more accurate to call it a time of, oh shit, which I say when I see a name come up on the screen that I wasn't expecting. Now, this happens quite a bit when I watch older movies that I have not seen in a long time, films close to my heart when I was younger, like the mid-80s Val Kilmer college comedy Real Genius, which, until I watched it again, I would classify as a nondescript coming-of-age applied physics romp. But when you get to the credits, you see the name of the cinematographer appear on the screen, Vilmos Zygmond. I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong, but that's a no shit. That's the same Oscar-winning cinematographer of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. 
He was also nominated three more times for movies like The Deer Hunter and The Black Dahlia. Well, no wonder I liked Real Genius so much. It was photographed by a legend. Now, as the opening credits of Real Genius progress, I barely recovered from my first no shit when another whopper pops up on the screen. The movie was edited by none other than Mr. Richard Chu, the man who cut the first Star Wars film, A New Hope, as well as classic films like The Conversation and My Favorite Year. I had no idea that my little guilty pleasure from the 80s had such a strong filmmaking pedigree, but thus is the power and the enjoyment of the no-shitter. You don't see it coming, and when you do, you are totally like, no shit, and your movie-watching experience is enriched. Just what fertilizer is supposed to do. History is also an area that I find myself digging for some good no-shit moments. There's almost always multiple times when I'm searching a topic that I generally say the words no shit out loud. The history of math, or more succinctly, the history of algebra, of using mathematics to determine variables, or in short, the history of the equation, is full of no shit. It all starts in a place called Uruk, or Uruk, U-R-U-K, where civilization as we know it started roughly 6,500 years ago, about 150 miles south of Baghdad in Iraq. Now, this area is sometimes called Sumerian, sometimes Babylonian, sometimes, and most accurately, it is called Mesopotamian. There had been human habitation in this area for thousands and thousands of years, mostly of the nomadic variety, with some towns but mostly trading posts and places of available water and salt. But that was about to change. According to some, including Google, between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers is where Uruk, or Uruk, I I won't be able to say that right. I got to decide how I'm going to say that. Is where Uruk, Uruk Uruk was settled. According to some, including Google, between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers is where Uruk, Uruk, is where Uruk was settled. The first of its kind, for Uruk was the world's first city. Uruk was humanity's first attempt at such an undertaking, and by all accounts, it was a smashing success. Besides holding the title as first city, Uruk could boast an impressive list of firsts that any city, anywhere, anytime in history, would find difficult to match. I mean, first known example of writing, first known example of architecture from the form of the ziggurat, First known example of the zero. First known example of personal property. Now, some of these could be just attributed to chronology. I mean, being first does have its advantages. Others, like writing, seem downright progressive. When we are going through an exercise like this, for me, researching, writing, and recording a podcast, and you listening to it, one of the things I think about is, how are we processing something like Uric? How does our mind picture such a place? The term picture is telling, but you could say understand, conceptualize, make sense of, choose your metaphor. It all comes down to the same thing. When talking about something like the first human city, how are we actually wrapping our minds around it? The answer to that question relies heavily on how you view time. Overall, the thought of how unbelievably long ago 6,500 years is boggles the mind. That is a long-ass time ago the type of time that our minds have a hard time comprehending. Most often, we slough it off as just a number. Other times, we translate it into a pseudo-fan-fiction mashup with all the adventure stories we admire so much. For example, for me, Uruk Uruk looks a lot like Aruk, the fictional city ruled over by Rip Torn in the Sword and Sandals classic Beastmaster. It is impossible for me not to have the image of Aruk 
in my mind when I'm thinking about Uruk. It can and probably will be a topic of an episode at some point, so I won't dig too deep concerning the temporal topic, but I would like to spend a moment on the concept of time versus the concept of duration. These two terms are related, but are applied quite differently. The former is all about measurement, sometimes referred to as clock time or mechanistic time. The latter is all about other aspects of time that are not measured. Duration is also sometimes referred to as living time, meaning the time that our minds track using non-mechanistic means. Now, when it comes to time as a measurement tool, which, by the way, is the only function of time, according to Einstein, we accomplish a very impressive feat. We slice the flow of reality into defined pieces. Because of this, we can snatch a bit of reality, a second, a millisecond, and examine it. Now, we humans are amazing at working with unchanging matter. If it doesn't move, we are wizards at understanding and manipulating it. And that is the power of time as measurement. We can take a part of time and slice it off from the rest of the flow of change that is always occurring and do science on it. Now, this ability has powered everything we would call modern in our lives. It's how we all practically think of time. But is this how the world works? In a series of broken up segments of time? Now, there's a lot of evidence otherwise. I mean, how do things change? How do they evolve? There certainly appears to be more of a flow to these processes. Also consider aging or wisdom and memory in general. More of a flow to these than a series of slides in a slide deck that is being advanced past our senses. I mean, if everything is just a series of slices of time strung together, why doesn't the next moment always just follow the preceding moment? How does anything new start at all? If mechanistic time, or physical time as Einstein called it, is the only true time, and psychological time, or duration, as the French philosopher Henri Bergson calls it, is only a figment of the human mind, what are all the non-mechanistic time-oriented structures of human consciousness? Like memory. I mean, how does mechanistic time work with human memory? Now, before you just blow off memory as some affectation of consciousness, nothing more, nothing less, then how do you explain how memory works hand-in-glove with perception to generate what we call reality? Now, what, you may ask? How does memory do anything of the sort? Now, I offer as example, reading. The elementary but crucial skill that most humans develop as children. When studied closely, the faculty of reading is much more than meets the eye. When you read, at least in a language like English or French, your perception is picking up only a portion of the letters on the screen. Your mind, in the form of your memory, supplies the rest of the letters as your eyes scan the text. This is not some metaphor for how reading works. It is how reading works. The majority of the words you are reading in what we like to call the present are using memories from the past to complete the process we call reading. Now, what type of clock can you use to track and measure the past as it supplies the crucial missing pieces to our present? More importantly, this gives credence to the fact that memory is not just ephemeral effluvia, but it is in fact a crucial thread in the actual fabric of reality. Now, in her fantastic book on Einstein and Bergson, author Jimena Canales does a great job of summarizing Bergson's thinking on psychological time, or as he put it, duration, from the book The Physicist and the Philosopher, Einstein, Bergson, and the Debate that Changed Our Understanding of Time, the author says, quote, You might think, argued the man who would confront Einstein, now she's speaking of Bergson here, 
that the words written on this page are simple material stimuli that set off ideas in your mind. Well, you'd be wrong. If we change or admit most of the letters here, you will most likely still be able to read the text. Readers typically recognize only 8 or 10 letters from about 30 or 40 of them, filling the rest from memory. Reading this very sentence would not be possible without an exteriorization of your memories, which arguably mix in with the letters on the page. Mind and matter, Bergson explained, join right here and now on this page. On every page. They join every time we read a clock or recognize an image, no matter how simple. Unquote. How does Einstein's mechanistic time work with this memory faculty of ours? How does being able to tell, accurately, the photo finish of a horse race vault physical mechanical time over the psychological flowing time of life? I mean, if one were to eradicate all psychological time from the planet performing a special kind of lobotomy, what would be left to measure? Certainly, they would be physical matter to measure, right? But would there be? I mean, so much of the physical universe is important to us because of the psychology we imprint on it. Yes, the physical camera and stopwatch are necessary to determine a true winner of a horse race, but without the psychology of the human mind, there wouldn't even be a horse race to begin with. We as a species have been attempting to work out this apparent dichotomy for as long as we've existed. While the rational science-based portion of our consciousness requires a mechanistic definition of time, the very mental faculties we use to understand the world and time's place in it are in fact outside of such a physical construct. Consider Uruk and the people of that city. What do we have in common with them? Most of us live in urban metropolitan areas, so there is that. We have families, friends, songs, rituals, emotions, and we both have mathematics. More specifically, we both have algebra. We solve equations today in the same general manner that the people of Uruk did 6,500 years ago. There is, of course, glaring differences between them and us as well. In many ways, the life and times of someone from 6,500 years ago is as alien to us as if they were from SETI Alpha 6. In either case, whether dealing with the similarities or the differences, we, as conscious entities, can reflect on and begin to understand the people of Uruk. We do this with our mind. Using facts, yes, but mostly memory, empathy, intuition, and reason to tease out our knowledge of these people of the far distant past. What we don't use, in any meaningful sense, is our senses. Our perception is not involved in the least in the process of understanding the lives of the people of Uruk. If time is only physical, only mechanistic, only able to measure, how are we ever able to understand the people of Uruk? Facts are certainly important, and physical measurements are the cream of the fact crop, but after that, where does a mechanized time come into the learning process? Memory, empathy, intuition, and reason, listed along with facts, are all functions of the eternal functioning of the human mind. They are often referred to as cognitive processes. What are these cognitive processes in reference to physical mechanistic time? Is the internal time of consciousness prone to error, especially under extreme circumstances, non-existent, as Einstein stated when debating Bergson in Paris in 1922? Who knows? At this point, it is a debate that is still unresolved. Now, all of this is a long way of saying that 6,500 years ago is a hell of a long time ago. Our ability as conscious beings to in any way comprehend someone who lived that far apart in time is absolutely mesmerizing to me. 
Regardless of the answer to the time question, it is apparent to me that without either one, the physical time of Einstein and the psychological time of Bergson, we would not be able to achieve the capacity to reflect on either one. As ever, in our quest for the big answers, this time, what is time, it is once again left unanswered, turning in on itself like all the big questions do, looping its way back to the beginning. Whoop, 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 what was that? Dick alert, dick alert. This is a message from the Diachronic Information Control Center, as interesting information pertaining to the moronic science theory of Dick has been obtained. That book, the one we were just uh, quoted by the author Canalis, begins her actual book with this statement. Quote, On April 6, 1922, Einstein met a man he would never forget. He was one of the most celebrated philosophers of the century, widely known for espousing a theory of time that explained what clocks did not. Memory, premonitions, expectations, and anticipations. Thanks to him, we know that to act on the future, one needs to start by changing the past. Unquote. The him she is talking about is Bergson. What was she talking about when she says that to act on the future, one needs to change the past? That sounds somewhat familiar. In a way, it is not too much of a stretch that our whole lives were spent living in the past. The order of operations concerning how perception begets complete thoughts is, in fact, an order that observes mechanical time. Even if it is extremely brief, there is a lag between perception and comprehension. In that lag time, we, as in our minds, are not creating a brand new world almost exactly like the world of a millisecond ago. Instead, like reading, the perception apparatus notes something novel, something new, then uses many features of consciousness, like memory, being one of the most prevalent, to fill in the rest of the details. This has concluded this dick alert. Stand by for future updates as they occur. Now back to our regularly scheduled programming. Thanks for indulging me. Anyway, my other thought I had while considering Uruk in its place as the world's first city was how utterly different a thought it must have been to choose to live in a place like Uruk instead of living like 99.9% .9 of the rest of your species. I mean, what caused the zig to everyone else's zag? Everyone else's zag being defined as living a nomadic tribal life. Certainly, there were towns by this point, but they were run as extensions of the nomadic lifestyle way stations, confluence of tradeways. Uruk was different. Though it resembled the existing towns, it just didn't stop growing. At its peak, the liberal estimate is that Uruk boasted over 80,000 residents. Now, just for comparison, the U.S. has 335 cities, over 100,000 currently. Uruk also lasted a long time, being inhabited continuously until about 300 A.D., almost 5,000 years. It was abandoned and then forgotten until an intrepid British explorer unearthed the city in 1853. Now, you know that thing when you read about how much money a movie made and there's a little asterisk on the small print that contains the words in adjusted dollars, meaning that a film like Gone with the Wind, released in 1939, when tickets cost 25 cents apiece, can top the list of highest grossing movies of all time because we've adjusted the ticket price to today's prices. Which, if I remember correctly, because movies in the time of COVID don't include theaters, but I still remembered it was a lot more than 25 cents. And just as a 
by the way here, the total unadjusted gross for the original and just the original release of Gone with the Wind, so when it was released in 1939 and only that year. And remember, so the ticket prices were 25 cents a pop. It pulled in that year $201 million. No shit. Think of Uric in adjusted years. I mean, meaning what would Uric look like today? Take that same logic of adjusted dollars and just say, okay, what does 80,000 people 6,500 years ago look like? I mean, who knows? It probably would dwarf anything we currently have, that is for sure. I mean, 80,000 peeps just at the very beginning of civilization, just trying to make it work. I just can't imagine what a place that must have been to be. This is a place where we find our story of math at the very inception. Considering how much is lost to history, it is remarkable how much information we have concerning the world of the people of Uruk. In fact, we have over 6,000 clay tablets full of proto-literate symbols called cuneiforms. They are little triangle-based characters, their distinctive appearance dictated mostly by the implements being used. They used a stylus, like a stick on clay. That's the reason they look that way more than that, hey, let's make everything look like a triangle. Now, most of these tablets, which are roughly the size of your hand, which does bring to mind how much a Yurukian would feel at home, at least for a minute in our modern world, as little rectangular tablets in our hands seem to be popular now, too. Anyway, most of the tablets they use consisted of what we would call administrative information, minding the store type of stuff, what most of our civil servants provide today, the infrastructure that allows society to function. They just did it in a much different way than we do. First, it is the idea of being proto-literate. Now, what does that mean? Think of a fast food menu or the screen on the device you're holding in your hand. Take a look at it. Those icons and images provoke meaning without giving any indication of the language you speak. The ancient tablets found at Uruk behave in this same manner. This is when asking the question, how does one come to understand what Uruk was like, is answered in part by mathematics. It holds a special place in the pantheon of human achievements that it can provide such a bridge to a culture that existed so damn long ago. If you look at an example of Urukian math, you will see, say for instance, three characters that are made up of the numbering system. Typically, it's going to be one, which is represented by a symbol that looks like the little ship in the game of asteroids that you fly around kind of shooting the dot at all those floating rocks. Then they have a 10. And this, this is when the ship points to the left now, and it's a little bigger. And then they have a 60. They jump all the way up to 60. And the ship returns to the orientation it did at one, but now it's significantly larger. So a number like 600 would have a larger asteroid ship pointing down, representing 60, and the 10 symbol, which is that smaller ship on the right of the 60 triangle, touching its side. Boom. Sumerian multiplication. The numerical system that they used in Uruk was a sexagesimal system, based on the number 60. Sure, that makes sense. Of course it does. Now, why did the first practitioners of the craft of mathematics start on what to our eyes is an odd choice to base a numbering system on. I mean, you wouldn't be alone in not having a clear understanding as to why this whole math thing got off sexagesimally. It's even a thing among the big brains out there. Thanks to Texas A&M's education website for just a sampling of the theories of why ancient bean counters in Sumeria based their mathematics on the number 60. 
One theory is it was based on the number of days in a year, which 360 was what they thought they were, which in turn is carved into a pie of six pieces, making 60 a logical outcome. This next one, the Eurekians had a 12-hour day with 60-minute hours. I don't understand how six we have 60-minute hours and we don't base it on 60, but it, the more important thing about this one is that their minutes lasted twice as long as ours did. That's weird. <laughs> the number six is useful when doing fractions is another one. Now, the Eurex loved their fractions. Now, combined with the fact that they had a symbol for one in 10, then a factor of six makes sense. Here's, here's one that's uh, a little outlandish. When you add the number of known planets 65 years ago, which is five, to the number of months, which is 12, you get the number 60, which, so what? This next one's really interesting. The duodecimal system, which is not the same thing as the sexagesimal system, but the duodecimal system is a system based on the number 12, which is something that's very important to our culture. And it happens to have a lot in common with a base 60 numbering system. At least that's what some smart guy on a website said. It does bring up the fact that the duodecimal system is still with us today. As I mentioned, it's important to us in the form of things like, well, 12 months, a dozen eggs, a baker's dozen, half a dozen. You know, if you ever wondered why or where that measurement came from, you can thank the Sumerians, maybe. This theory here sort of seems like they weren't trying very hard, but someone said they just made the whole thing up, possibly as a political compromise as power was consolidating in the burgeoning little city that could. So maybe it was just completely arbitrary. And this last one, they got a kick out of having a proto-numerical system based on the word sexagesimal. I mean, if someone was going to be figuring out how many seed cubits you were going to be left with after adding up all the sargals and the ikus, isn't it just a little bit more interesting that you're doing so with the sexiest of decimals? Okay, well, I made that last one up. I don't want to blame Texas A&M for that. So yeah, who the hell knows why they went with the number 60 system? But shit, it worked pretty damn well for them for a very, very, very long time. It is important to note that when I talk about the cuneiform system, they were not viewed in the same manner as we would look upon our mathematical symbols. First, the symbols for one, 10, 60, and other combination symbols would, in Uruk, represent a quantity, not a number. There is nothing abstract at all in the math of ancient Mesopotamia. It is 100% practical. Second, there was no other notation at all. No plus, no minus, no parentheses, none of that. All the math was done rhetorically, as in word problems. For example, I added twice the side to the square, the result is 2, 51, 60. What is the side? That would be, in modern parlance, what is called a basic quadratic equation written as x squared plus 2 times x equals 10,300. If the brains of Europe could solve quadratic and cubic equations, which may not sound like much, but considering once the Greeks took math over a couple thousand years later from the Mesopotamians, the Western world struggled to attain even a solution to a cubic equation as late as the 16th century. So the Eurekians were way ahead of their time. Now, it is something to contemplate as we are talking only a couple of centuries before Galois was to hit the scene. So that's what kind of made Galois so amazing is that algebra was just starting to be used again. That is how new and old, I guess, algebra was at that point. 
Overall, it was a powerful, if often neglected, area of math. And for some reason, it appeals to us now in the Western world, and it certainly appealed to our distant relatives in Uruk. You have to wonder how much of Uruk's success was due to its reliance on the equation. Being able to logically parse out land and food, ensuring some semblance of equality. Interesting that those two terms have the same root, equation, equality, coincidence? Maybe the unifying force behind this migration from life of the nomad to life of the city dweller was driven by that same inexorable force, the aforementioned order in order to disorder. The promise of better life through the order delivered by their sexagesimals proved to be a siren call to many. Once engaged in the inertia of this movement of savage to citizen, it has not ceased even to this day. We are thatched and churned by its ceaseless, unending march towards, well, what? Teilhard's Omega Point? Vernansky's Star Trek Matter Replicator? I mean, statistically speaking, the most likely outcome of all this so-called progress is our own extinction. But that should come as no surprise. It is very likely the only reason we are here. Uruk and its cities like her were mathing the shit out of agriculture, architecture, finance, war, and anything else to get their sexagesimals around. Once Uruk demonstrated to the region that there was security and livelihood to be had behind the walls of a city using math, people started to notice. Now, in my head, I bring another movie into this. I kind of liken Uruk and some of the other strongholds that sort of pop up in this era to the movie Fury Road, you know, like Gastown and Bullet Town. But that inexorable march of progress could not be stopped. Eventually, war gave way to empire. So these individual strongholds were either conquered or became the conqueror in a manner that would be copied innumerable ways throughout history. Remember, order in order to disorder. Now, this empire, like Uruk the city, would be a first. The first known multi-city state empire, known as the Sumerian or sometimes Babylonian Empire. And according to what we know, it was started by a guy that is absolutely brimming with no shit. I would like to present to you Sargon the Great, in allegedly his own words, from the legend of Sargon of Akkad. Quote, Sargon the mighty king, king of Akkad am I. My mother was a changeling, my father I knew not. The brothers of my father love the hills. My city is Azuperanu, which is situated on the banks of the Euphrates. My changeling mother conceived me. In secret, she bore me. She sent me in a basket of rushes. With bitumen, she sealed my lid. She cast me into the river, which rose not over me. The river bore me up and carried me to Akai, the drawer of water. Akai, the drawer of water, lifted me out as he dipped his ewer. Akai, the drawer of water, took me as his son and reared me. Akai, the drawer of water, appointed me as his gardener. While I was his gardener, Ishtar granted me her love. And for four and unknown years, I exercised kingship. The black-headed people I ruled. I governed mighty mountains with chip axes of bronze I conquered. Unquote. That is a translation of what is called a Naru, a story carved into a large column, which is called itself a steel, S-T-E-L-E. This story is the life of Sargon the Great. 
The carved column of stone was discovered in 1867 and dates back to the 7th century BC. That means the story of Sargon had remained in popular culture for almost 2,000 years up to that point. It's obviously much older now. That brings us the first of the no-shit moments for me. Sargon's story sounds very familiar. The secret birth, the river, the basket, the rescue, the ascension, the ruling. Holy Moses, I said to myself, I recognize that story. To the best of my recollection, though, Moses was parting the sea somewhere in and around 1200 BC or so, meaning the origin story of Sargon predates it by over a millennia. Now, that raises a lot of interesting questions, but they are luckily outside of the purview of this discussion. But just because, like getting a handshake from Paul Hollywood, I do say no shit one more time to this little morsel of info to chew on. Sargon the Great drops another excrement vacancy when he is credited with being the first human in history to rule what we would call an empire. He united what was once thought impossible to unite the fractious, warring city-states inhabiting the land between the Euphrates and Tigris rivers in 24th century BC, or around the 2300s. Now, just checking the math, it appears to have taken over 2,000 years to move from city-state to empire. That seems to have sped up as uh, civilization continued to progress. Once an empire is formed, it became the template for all other rulers and wannabe rulers in the area. Sumerian, Babylonian, Mesopotamian, the different titles of the rulers of the Fertile Crescent attest to the changes in geography, religion, and climate that drove change. Slowly, but as the centuries accumulated, change nonetheless. The last of the good no-shits from Sargon is probably my favorite. In many ways, it is his claim to fame. That is saying a lot from a guy who is credited as the world's first emperor and the guy who instituted the first 12-month calendar which I guess is its own little no-shitter of its own. But the one that really gets me, the one that I get most jazzed about, is the connection with Sargon, who goes by many monikers, the first, the great, and his original title, Sargon of Akkad. That would make him the first Akkadian. Now, starting there, we can jump to the story of the last of the Akkadians. This is the story that you may know well. Long after Sargon and his family ruled their empire, it is the last of the Akkadians we find. It is a story of the ruthless warrior King Memnon, who is laying waste to all the tribes and towns of the land. In order to stave off extinction, the local tribes enlist the last of the Akkadians, a man named Matthias, his half-brother Jessup, and a friend named Rama, to assassinate the evil Memnon. Eventually, Matthias, the last of the Akkadians, and Memnon meet in battle. Some magic is used, and once Matthias defeats Memnon, he raises to the throne of Egypt as a king. But not just any king, no siree, but the Scorpion King. No shit. I mean, there may be some question as to the veracity of this story. I mean, they did get Dwayne Johnson to portray the Scorpion King, so it's probably not all true. But damn, Acadians, way to go out on top. Now, back to reality, Sargon and his family directly ruled the Sumerian Empire for over 130 years. Now, once they left, the governance and policy they established stayed. Now, we know a shit ton about these Sumerians because we have over one million tablets of their cuneiform writing. As you would expect, the tablets are mostly official in nature. 
They are just monotonous listings of transactions and tables used in daily business doings of the average Sumerian. No more, no less. Sure, some are instructional, but even those examples are void of any abstractions. Now, it is a tasty little irony that the Sumerian culture used algebra so much, but never ventured into the abstract. They ignored all negative numbers, which popped up a lot when solving quadratic equations, because they, being ultimately pragmatic, had no use for them. It would take someone like our man Galois, literally, to break the math of variables away from this inner static view of the world. For the most part, though, the foundations of algebra were on firm ground in the world of the ancient Sumerian. They routinely worked with the same complexity of equations that Leonardo da Vinci would be using over 5,000 years later. It is probably due to this fact, the relatively advanced nature of Sumerian mathematics, that even though we have over 1 million cuneiform tablets to reference, there is little or no exposition into the hows and whys of their own mathematical understanding. Basically, the Sumerians neglected, in most cases, to show their work. Now, around the same time, south of the Sumerian Empire, another mighty empire was in full swing. Once again, using the fertile plains provided by a mighty river to establish a culture that flourished for over 3,000 years. At the same time of the Sargonic dynasty was going down, though I'm a little fuzzy concerning that Scorpion King thing, because according to my research into the Scorpion King, the last of the Akkadians takes place before the time of the pyramids, but the first of the Akkadians was definitely ruling at the time when there were pyramids in Egypt. Hmm, I'm going to have to rethink the whole scorpion thinking. Something might be off there. Anyway, at the time of the Sargon and his kin were upon the throne, Egypt was an empire in turmoil. It had browned for quite a long time at that point, but it was going through a couple quick power struggles in succession. So in quick succession, the empire had seen the end of what was called the Old Kingdom, a time that had lasted for 500 years. Not forever, so it's not, but a long time. Then they went through what is called the First Intermediate Period, basically a euphemism for a Game of Thrones-style chaos vying for control of the vast realm. That lasted for 130 years, during which Sargon came to power. Now, he probably wouldn't have been able to consolidate as much as he did if Egypt had been at full strength. As history proves countless times, one group's misfortune is another group's opportunity. Eventually, Egypt got her act together and produced a golden age that is called the Middle Kingdom. It is from this time, after the dust had settled from the infighting and power grabs of the intermediate period, that we get most of our knowledge how Egyptians used mathematics. Overall, the amount of information we have concerning math in the time of pharaohs pales in comparison to what we know from their neighbors to the north, the Sumerians, but it is the quality of the information, namely the fact that the Egyptians were very much more likely to show their work, to break down the concept of their mathematical system. They used a base 10 numerical system, a standard decimal system. So long Sumerian sexagesimals! and in general, were not as advanced in the world of equations as the Sumerians. Though they could solve more complex equations like quadratics, they didn't do so often and very rarely ever tried to solve a cubic equation, mostly relying on the most basic of equations, the linear equation. Now, I'm going to let mathematician and author Mario Livio break down an example of an Egyptian equation. It is in this quote, he is referencing a famous artifact, a papyrus that contains over 80 mathematical problems. 
Now, from the book, The Equation That Couldn't Be Solved, the author says this artifact, quote, deals mostly with a variety of practical issues, from the fair partition of loaves of bread to the slope of pyramids. The unknown, now here he's talking about the unknown in an equation, as in solve for X, the unknown for Egyptians is called the aha, meaning group. For example, problem 26 on the papyrus calls for the value of aha if aha and its quarter are added to become 15. In modern notation, we would formulate the equation x plus one quarter x equals 15, to which the answer is aha equals 12, unquote. Aha! I wonder if that's where it comes from. I mean, it makes sense, and the original usage of the term fits well with our current conception of the word. Also, it is not so far-fetched to have something from the distant past remain in our popular culture. Recall the vestiges of the use of a duodecimal system based on the number 12. We can still see that with our dozen eggs in our 12 months. Now, this ancient mathematical papyrus was written by an Egyptian scribe named Ahmes, A-H-M-E-S, or Ahmes, in or around 1790 B.C. Now, it is believed he is not the author of the exercises that are listed, he credits the wisdom of many ages past, dating the actual mathematical discoveries recorded, as being at least a couple centuries old at the time he wrote them. So besides being a great example of basic Egyptian mathematical thought, as each problem or equation is laid out, again, rhetorically, using the Egyptian hieroglyph proto-language, in detail with the solutions appearing right alongside the problem. Now this is a huge document. Not just historically speaking, but really, it's physically large, measuring over 18 feet in length. And almost every inch is covered in math. Three other things stand out to me concerning this amazing document. First, its contents are very benign, meaning there is nothing earth-shaking, nothing to start conspiracy theories about aliens teaching the Egyptians some sort of advanced math. None of that. However, if you were to say, read what at the time would have been considered the blurb on the book jacket of this lengthy sheet of desiccated plant, you would think that something more important and powerful were contained within the scribbles and etchings of the glyphs. I mean, the document starts with the ominous statement decreeing that this was, quote, the entrance into the knowledge of all existing things and all obscure secrets, unquote. Whoa, that's some marketing. Who wouldn't want to pick themselves up a copy? Now, that leads me to the second interesting tidbit concerning this 4,000-year-old document, its name. Now, if you search for the Alms Papyrus online, you'll notice very quickly that this document, who we know the authorship of, is actually named for the guy who quote-unquote discovered it in the late 1860s or so. Now, I verbalized air quotes because the term discovered is generous at best. Now, this discoverer, a Scottish guy named Alexander Henry Rind allegedly discovered the epoch-making mathematical text while shopping. He bought it at a bookstore, which you got to give the guy credit for thinking pragmatically. You have to wonder how often hunters of antiquity have missed opportunities simply by not going to the store and seeing if they have it on the shelf. Top scores for shortest distance between A and B, Mr. Rind. So let's get this straight. A guy is walking through the local mall buys a book, and now the book is named after him? Have I got that right? I mean, we know who wrote it. He told us in the text, my name is Alms. Boom, you have your name, the Alms Papyrus. 
But since Ahms claimed not to be the author, just the scribe, I guess that gives old bargain hunter Rind, carte blanche, to be associated with one of the most important archaeological finds in mathematics and indeed human history. You gotta love that. And the third dollop of goodness that this Ahms papyrus offers is a fantastic example of the shared human experience of mathematics. Livio, in his book The Equation That Couldn't Be Solved, teases out this dazzler of an observation. He notes that problem 79 of the Alms Papyrus appears to be a little puzzle for puzzle's sake, with no practical bearing on pyramids or loaves of bread. The problem reads, quote, In each of the seven houses there are seven cats, each of which ate seven mice, each of which would have eaten seven ears of wheat, each of which would have produced seven he-cats of grain. Now fast forward about 2,000 years to the year 1202, and pick up a book by the renowned Leonardo of Pisa, otherwise known as Fibonacci of Golden Ratio fame. He published a book called Book of the Abacus. In it, he presents a problem that reads, Seven old women are traveling to Rome. Each has seven mules. On each mule there are seven sacks. In each sack there are seven loaves of bread. In each loaf there are seven knives, and each knife has seven sheaths. Find the total of them. Unquote. Jump ahead one more time, this time about 500 years or so to Victorian England in the mid-18th century when Mother Goose hit the scene with this absolute banger. Quote, As I was going to St. Ives, I met a man with seven wives. Every wife has seven sacks. Every sack has seven cats. Every cat had seven kits. Kits, cats, sacks, and wives. How many were going to St. Ives? Unquote. Any way you slice it then, whether this is an unbroken chain of consciousness that carries knowledge forward through an ever-changing universe, allowing for humans to arrive at similar ideas, though separated by vast distances of space and time, or it's just a coincidence, and the fact that these are good examples of our infatuation with the number seven, and that the number seven appeals to many cultures throughout history, it only makes sense that multiple cultures would build heuristics around the number seven. In either case, it's fun to chew on something like the Alms Papyrus and all its surprising insight it contains. So math was what it was for a long time, a mishmash of word problems and ahas that at best kept the wheels of empire grinding along. That is, until our friends from ancient Greece hit the scene. Chronologically speaking, we are in or around 600 BC or so. The Mesopotamian and Egyptian empires are still chugging along, and along comes the hayseeds from the West, the Greeks. It is at this point that the topic of Greek mathematics is begun with the discussion of Pythagoras, who, according to the internet, was a Greek philosopher, mystic mathematician, born in or around 580 BC. My readings on the topic, however, not only cast doubt on the date, but actually call into question whether or not there was an actual dude named Pythagoras at all. We have an ancient Greek version of a Shakespearean conspiracy theory in a sense, though this is not one that is so much a conspiracy as an accumulation of facts and a logical deduction taken from said facts. In one of my favorite books, The Book of Dead Philosophers by Simon Critchley, he has this great breakdown on the subject of Pythagoras. Quote, Sadly, it is now almost universally assumed by classical scholars that Pythagoras never existed it seems that there was a group of people in southern Italy called Pythagoreans who invented a founder for the beliefs who, accordingly, 
lived and died in a manner consistent with those beliefs. But let's not let Pythagoras's mere non-existence to deter us, as the stories that surround him are so compelling. Now he's going to go on here to tell you some stories about Pythagoras. Pythagorean doctrines were bound by an oath of secrecy, so we know very little until the version that appears in Plato about 200 years later. These include belief in the immortality and transmigration of the soul and the view that the ultimate reality of the universe consists in number. Pythagoreans regarded even numbers as female and odd numbers as male. The number five was called marriage because it was the product of the first even and odd numbers. The Greeks considered the number one as a unit and not a proper number, which had to express a multiplicity. Pythagoreans also believed that their master had established the ratios that underlie music. This had huge influence in the notion of music of the spheres, where the entire cosmos was the expression of a musical harmony whose key was given in mathematics. However, the Pythagoreans also observed a number of more worldly doctrines, involving food in particular. They abstained from meat or fish. For some reason, red mullet is singled out for a special prohibition, and Plutarch notes they considered the egg taboo as well. Pythagoras and his followers also inherited from the Egyptians a strong revulsion to beans because of the apparent resemblance to the genitalia. Apparently, bean may have been a slang term for testicle. But there are many other reasons for this dislike of beans. There are some fascinating remarks in the philosophies or the refutation of all heresies written by the Christian bishop Hippolytus in 220 AD. Now, according to him, if beans are chewed and left in the sun, they emit the smell of semen. Even worse, if one takes the bean in flour and buries it in the earth and in a few days digs it up, now Critchley is going to quote Hippolytus here, quote, we shall see it at first having the form of a woman's pudenda and afterwards, on close examination, a child's head growing with it, unquote. Now Critchley continues, of course, as many of us know at all costs, beans should be avoided as they produce terrible flatulence. Oddly, it is because of beans that Pythagoras met his end. So the legend goes, Pythagoras left his native Samos, an island off the Ionian coast, because of his dislike of the policies of the tyrant Polycrates. He fled with his followers to Crotus in southern Italy and extended considerable influence and power in the region of present-day Calabria. Prophyry, in his Life of Pythagoras, relates how a certain man, Silo, and his retinue burnt down the house in which Pythagoras and his followers were gathered. The master only escaped because his followers bridged the fire with their own bodies. He got as far as the bean fields, where he stopped and declared that he would rather be killed than cross it. This enabled his pursuers to catch up with him and cut his throat. Unquote. Recall that I told you that learning the history of math would be entertaining. We've had sex beans, sexagesimals, scorpion kings, and more aha moments than you can shake a ziggurat at. And we are really just getting started. So real or not, Pythagoras and his followers had an enormous impact on Greek mathematics. As a whole, the Greeks are associated with using geometry instead of algebra. It is hard to mention any significant Greek mathematical achievement without it being geometric in nomenclature. Pythagoras, Euclid, Archimedes, all dudes who expressed their theories as geometry. Why? Algebra had been used for millennia up to that point, 
What was the aversion the Greeks had to working on algebraic equations? Essentially, what is the difference between geometry and algebra, and why did it matter to the Greeks? Now, I was not able to give myself a super satisfactory answer, but here are some of the highlights. First, algebra, the term, did not exist at the time of the ancient Greeks. The Greeks were certainly doing a form of algebra, but just didn't call it that. In many ways, what they were doing could be called arithmetic, which they used to solve problems posed as geometric. Now, then consider that geometry was useful and practical. Some people attributed to geometry the same function in ancient Greece as computers have in our modern world. The example I came across used the idea of the ease of drawing a circle versus computing a square root with an abacus. There also wasn't an actual number zero in the Greek number system. Now, by comparison, the Sumerians had been using the number zero for almost 2,500 years before the Greeks started up. The Greeks did have a symbol for a placeholder, but it was not considered a number. In fact, the number nomenclature in Greek mathematics is almost more language than numbering system. They used 27 symbols to represent their numbers, alpha, beta, all those guys, which stood for the different combinations of numbers broken out into base 10, meaning ones, tens, and hundreds. The numbers, like 589, would be represented by a symbol of a circle with a vertical slash through it, standing for 500, a character that looks like an incomplete gallows for a game of hangman for 80, and another circle with a dot in it for 9, 589. They kind of look like mahjong game pieces, actually. Now, in any event, the similarities to the proto-literate symbols used by the Egyptians and Sumerians is pretty striking. But the big difference being the lack of zero. Without a zero, solving functions and formulas is arduous. And if we know anything about the ancient Greek, while they never shied away from hard work, they also prized logical efficiency and the leisure time it provided. Why struggle with something when there is an equally powerful option that fits our needs? That leads us back to the old bean-hater Pythagoras and his followers. Now, there's a story that they, the Pythagoreans, murdered a fellow disciple after he divulged the closely guarded secret of irrational numbers, like pi, or the square root of two. Like the end of The Godfather 2, the turncoat was rowed out in the middle of a lake and killed. This Fredo moment was a drowning, and some say it was punishment for breaking the code of silence the Pythagoreans lived by. Others, however, believe the murder was due to what was revealed as opposed to just the act of breaking the code. The reason for this is that irrational numbers are a gigantic fly in the ointment of the harmony of the universe best represented through number, also known as the music of the spheres. The entire edifice of Pythagorean thought, remember that we know most of it by way of our friend Plato, who has been known to utilize a renowned historical figure to further his own agenda, which includes the immortality of the soul, the perfect forms of platonic thought, all of it, could be toppled if the world was to find out about irrational numbers. Now, I like this theory because it is interesting both in the fact that it humanizes the past by portraying the Pythagoreans not as mystic mathematical ninjas, but instead as your run-of-the-mill, toxic, culty little groupthink that grips all of us. In some ways, there doesn't appear to be much difference between choking out your buddy to hide an inconvenient fact and plotting to kidnap the governor of Michigan. 
Now, the other side of that coin is that it brings me the smug pleasure of viewing another example of the stupid criminal. This time, ancient Greek mathematic cult version. I mean, did they expect to stop the fact of irrational numbers? It is, again, sim- eerily similar to how in today's culture we have such twisted internal logics that continue to fight for what is clearly not possible or real. But to get back to that question at hand, the fact that Pythagoras and his beliefs had such a huge influence on Greek culture, especially after being championed by Plato, appears to come from his disdain for, now I wish I could say beans, I really do. But as much as he hated the genitalia resembling legumes, he hated irrational numbers more. And here is the crux of it. The infamous square root of two, that's the actual irrational number that the disciple was executed for divulging, while being something worth killing to keep from destroying everything you believed in, was an inevitable event when you use algebra or arithmetic. Now that same world-destroying irrational number that you would kill over all but disappears in the world explained geometrically. That's right. In the nomenclature of geometry, what was once offensive and avoided at all costs disappears into the practical visual world of geometry. Specifically, the square root of 2 can be expressed geometrically as the length of the diagonal of a square. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. No need to choke out your buddy. No need to tear down the metaphysical edifice that we have created. Just geometry and chill. So at this point in history, around 400 BC or so, Mathematics loses its algebraic influence. It is still being done as arithmetic, but the equations are subservient to the form, the dot, the line, the angle. As Greek culture spreads, so does the Greek way of doing math. It was a practical choice in many ways, in somewhat a tomato-tomato situation, as there was not much actual difference between algebra and geometry. That is, until you add people. People like Pythagoreans who were willing to allegedly commit murder over the square root of two. But they were super cool with the same exact concept in a world defined geometrically. How is that not a difference? For them, there was something worth killing over in the decision to use algebra versus geometry, a distinction as different as Sargon and Solon. But is that all it is? Just a difference of opinion? It's hard not to hear the words of Simon Critchley in my head. Now, we just read an extensive quote of his concerning the existence of the mythic Greek mathematician, but Critchley goes on to say that the Pythagoreans and their very likely invention of their master, Pythagoras, is, quote, illustrative of the wider point that disciples of a thinker will often invent stories and anecdotes that illustrate the life of the master in whom they want to believe. Perhaps we should be suspicious of this desire for a master, unquote. That is something to consider indeed. It seems that even when confronted with mathematics certainties, feeble human reason can still rear its ugly head. That does refute in some way my contention in the previous episode of math's seeming infallibility. But does it? I mean, one would have to judge the transition from algebra to geometry as part of the same effort that ended a person's life. I mean, you could definitely do that. That story of the drowning of the disciple, even if it's made up, it still was made up and there's a reason it is still around, as a message, a reminder, stuck in our consciousness of the stakes at play. So if you were playing detective 
If the crime began with the murder of a disciple and continued with the cover-up of hiding irrational numbers in the perfect angles and lines of geometry, then you could make an argument that it is all just made up by our minds and we can choose to use the world system that best works for each of us. Now, even if that was the case, the fundamentals of math did not change, just the human interpretation of it. Similar to the sexagesimals of the Sumerians, the choice of the Greeks to view the world geometrically worked for them. Neither one of them are outlandish in the least unless you compare them to our current system. What works for us? To us, it would be strange to live in a world of base 60 fractions. But imagine how it would feel to them if they were to come from Uruk or Thebes and view our math system. Now, this current episode has been full of examples of humanity's struggle to harness this understanding of mathematics. Now, in some ways, you could view this furtive attempt to harness numbers as an indication that intuitively, there was something there for the ancient cultures, something that made sense, that was evident as in the air in their lungs or the voices in their heads, that math was part of the matter that they were starting to harness. For the most part, math was the natural extension of living in the first civilized cultures. The Mesopotamians and Egyptians were incredibly durable, successful societies that could boast a vibrant intellectual component. Their vast edifices that they constructed are testaments to their, not only to their abilities, but to their desire to make them known to the world. Then along came the Greeks and their desire for harmony, a desire that was so great that they invented a myth in which the betrayer of that harmony is murdered by his closest friends. It is truly harmony at all costs. But just as important, the view of math continued to evolve. The Greeks opened the door to the metaphysical, the abstract nature of mathematics. They may not have wanted to, but that is the odd thing about math. They wanted so much to roll the tape back that they resorted to murder. But with stuff like math, it's very hard to put the toothpaste back in the tube. Once the door was opened, it would remain so. Though it would take a long time for the all-consuming power of mathematics to become evident. But even then, evidence, it seems, can be in the eye of the beholder. I mean, hearken back to the three examples of using the number seven to teach a little arithmetic. The first example was written in 1790 BC, but was lost to history until it was purchased in a bookshop in the 1860s. During the intervening millennia, two more examples of problem number 79 appeared, one in the 13th century produced by one of math's most famous mathematicians, Fibonacci, and the other dating from the 18th century from none other than Mother Goose. Now, we have a decision to make. Is this just a coincidence? Is this an example of a new sphere like membrane of consciousness that all humans share. Which one? Now, this may be an easy decision for some of you and for others, not so much. Nonetheless, ultimately, the decision we make will either jive with the consensus or it won't. And that may be all that reality is. Now, if you don't believe me, ask the nomads of the plains of Mesopotamia. Ask the townspeople that Sargon swallowed up. Ask the Greek who chose not to do geometry or the scientists who refused to buy what relativity was selling or the politicians who ignore 78 million votes. Now, what I'm driving at, regardless of what you think of the puzzles of seven and their origin, what you think concerning the difference between algebra or geometry, or what you think of what it takes to be a citizen in the United States, it may only matter how strongly you are willing to fight for your idea that ultimately drives reality. In some cases, it may not matter if your ideas are verifiable facts of the universe or something more metaphysical in nature. 
I mean, the Sumerians conquered their math into people. Plato dominated the intellectual world in much the same manner, all but eradicating his opponents, both in real time and throughout history. I mean, one does not have to look very far other than someone like Epicurus, who at the time of Plato was a serious competitor to the dominant intellectual worldview he was peddling. After Plato, Epicurus is sort of a footnote. So power, in whatever its form, goes a long way to determining the outcome of clashes of culture and who gets to really define reality. Recall that statement from earlier in the podcast, the quote from the book on Einstein and Bergson's feud over the meaning of time and the theory of relativity. Quote, We know now that to act on the future, one needs to start by changing the past. Changing the past takes sustained applications of energy, sustained applications of power. It is helpful in this effort to include factual evidence, but it is by no means necessary. Actually, in many cases, it is the exclusion of evidence that makes it possible for the past to be altered and therefore the future to be acted upon. Choosing to believe in one idea versus the other, duration or relativity, algebra or geometry, tasty bean or disgusting vegetative gonad, new sphere or no sphere, the U.S. presidential election is over or it's not. In each case, we are making choices and our reasoning abilities do not need facts to make these choices. All this talk of choosing reinforces the idea of it from bit. The idea that all the universe is determined by the innumerable choices that are being made. Humans have elevated conscious choices above all other myriad of interactions in the material world that involve exchanging data. That does seem appropriately hubristic of us, thinking that our flimsy societies match in any way the breadth and scope of what the universe can produce. We, of course, are part of that process, the universal process of winding up in order to wind down. We do our part by continually making choices. I believe that is why it can be so hard to make up your mind. We are not designed to make up our mind. We are designed to choose. That's what draws me to that algebra geometry switch. It appears that there is no real difference between the two, unless, of course, you've built your entire view of the world based on the harmony of numbers and don't want to recognize the non-harmonic ones. Not only is it just a choice between which one you want to use to solve your problem, it is a choice that mattered to people, and therefore the people with skin in the game, like Plato, made sure to be crystal clear that upon penalty of death, you should avoid doing algebra. Now, regardless of the veracity of that godfather-esque hit job of a story, it has lasted in our culture to this day, thousands of years. Why? It is almost like Plato wanted all who entered to understand geometry and why it is important to think geometrically. After all, those words, let no man enter who does not understand geometry, were chiseled into the front door of his actual academy. The decision to use geometry mattered so much so that it was worth sacrificing human life over. And in Plato's efforts, apparently paid off, as for almost 2,000 years, if one was doing mathematics in the Western world, then one was doing geometry. It wasn't until a few centuries before our hero, Galois, is thrust upon the scene that algebra started to work its way back to prominence. His time, his view of math, and his life and death all signal a transition as epoch-making as Sargon's sesagesimals, Egypt's he-cats of ahas, and the metaphysical world of geometry of the ancient Greeks. 
The intellectual and political upheaval of Galois' France during the Revolution was another example, like the Puzzles of Seven, of humanity circling back, looping around to take another bite at the apple. Whether we do this by design, by directive, or by coincidence, it is something that we cannot ignore. Like the Puzzles of Seven, the cycles that define our view of how the world functions can bubble up every so often as a cultural movement, a ring on the tree of cultural evolution. When a new culture begins to emerge, conflict ensues. This is not just a function of an unruly mob. Even the most intelligent of us, the actual geniuses of our societies, are not immune. Facts matter, but when human decision-making and reasoning are involved, they do not matter as much as how hard one side fights for their version of their facts. For us, as human beings, we have a hard time not getting behind a fighter, even if that fighter is a fucking idiot. But sometimes they are not idiots. Sometimes you can be Einstein and still fall prey to it. For me, I think about the topic that was covered earlier in this episode, the idea of time, specifically the opposing viewpoints of the physicist Einstein and the philosopher Bergson. Generally speaking, the two men were at opposite sides of the argument of what the physical theory of relativity meant. Now, the two men, despite what is widely reported, agreed on the logic and workings of relativity as a physical theory. What they differed on is what relativity and the results derived from it meant. And this is where it starts to resemble algebra and geometry. Einstein believed that relativity and the non-Euclidean geometry, specifically called Riemann geometry, used to describe his theory is the stuff the universe is made of. It is reality. While the philosopher Bergson believed that Einstein's theory was just one way to explain the workings of the universe. One was free to choose it, but the theory and the math behind it were not in and of themselves an absolute truth. Now, interesting that one of their core disagreements, the ability to choose to use relativity and describe the workings of the universe or not, I mean, Bergson thought you could choose, Einstein most unequivocally did not, was what we were just talking about, making a choice to believe in something, to use it to make sense of the world you live in in one hand, or the fact that there are incontrovertible facts that, due to their essential nature, are the very first principles that the universe is actually built on. Now, to be clear, we are still talking about philosophic scientific stuff here. Bergson is not saying that all fantasy should be taken as legit worldviews, but more in the vein of choosing to use, say, Newtonian physics versus relativity. Now, Einstein would have no other theory above his. Now, it doesn't matter about the details of this tiff between physicist and philosopher. What does matter, and what is apparent, is that Einstein won. We see the world through the lens of relativity now. We may not know it, but we do. Bergson has been dispatched to the dustbin of stuffy, old, and ineffective philosophers. However, in the beginning, and for a while, well into the 1950s, there was still some fight in the followers of Bergson and his desire to keep the living time, the time of consciousness relevant to humanity. Seventy years later, there's little or no sign of a serious contender to the crown of common-sense view of the world. Relativity is here to stay. Just like geometry was. And as Bergson predicted, there have been consequences that have occurred outside of the world of science. The loss of objectivity in today's popular social culture, I believe, is a direct result of the average Joe's application of its fortune cookie understanding of relativity. In short, everything in our lives has become relative. Truth, 
fact, character, manners, science, faith, all of it understood through the misunderstood prism that relativity brought forth. I'm not certain how Einstein would feel about his theory today. I am certain how he felt about his theory back then. He was adamant that it was the absolute truth, the way things really are. And once again, I want to thank the gods of irony for presenting such a delicious little morsel. In this case, because for Einstein, everything could be relative, save for the relativity itself. Oh, yes, and the speed of light. So I guess there's two things. But nonetheless, the fact that relativity couldn't be relative is fantastic. It does smell a little like the platonic category of the good with a capital G, a category that has no properties but defines all other properties of the universe. It also reminds me of the algebra geometry question as much like the ancient Greeks bringing forth a new way of looking at the world based in part on the strong desire to avoid glitches in their specific form of the matrix and ushering in the era of geometry. Einstein was not only responsible for the mechanical parts of his theory, the equations, the math, but he, like the possibly mythical Pythagoras, wrapped up his mathematical theory with a little bit of metaphysics. Einstein's insistence that his interpretation of Riemann geometry unveils the true inner workings of the universe is, according to him, the only true representation of the universe, and it smacks a lot like platonic forms, the allegory of the cave, and just carries the general stink of metaphysics. Bergson accused him directly of this. Now, to be clear, neither I nor Bergson are quibbling with the accuracy of the special theory of relativity and most of the general theory of relativity, the math, the experimental data, it all checks out. As a conceptualization of how the universe works, it is flawless. But the question remains, what does that mean? Einstein felt that it meant that relativity was the only explanation of physical universe. Stuff like time was reduced merely to a mechanical clock time. All other forms or understandings of time were not real, according to Einstein. Now, one of the major examples of this debate surrounding the acceptance of relativity in the early 20th century, centered around a paradox called the twin paradox. When relativity was young, as a theory, the thought experiment was posed inquiring what would happen if you took identical twins and placed one of them in a rocket ship and sent them on a journey at very high speeds, at almost the speed of light, say for two years. Upon returning, the twins would be different ages, and their respective clocks would display different times the twin moving at the, almost the speed of light would have had time slow down. They would be younger than their twin. Now, this paradox is not too surprising to our modern ears, as we've adopted it fully into our popular culture in the form of books and movies. But back in the early days of relativity, it was still a hotly contested argument. Bergson's main objection is that the time, as defined by the consciousness of the twin who took the journey, has to be taken into account. What effects would a time gap of multiple years actually have on the human mind? Now, we have seemed to accept the idea there would be no effects whatsoever, but I'm not so sure. Think of the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks. Not a time travel movie in the least, but it does explore the psychology of gaps in time. The main character, Chuck's ordeal on the deserted island that cost him three years of time meant more than just a world that had moved on more than just the physical changes his body endured, it also involved lost time. He was removed from the flow and change of time. And the film ends with him seemingly accepting that choice 
and choosing to stay outside of time, outside of that original flow. He'll obviously have to start a new one. So that time gap is real. It is something that would have an effect, and Einstein was unwilling to concede any ground to any sense of universal time that was not of the measurement variety. But that type of decision, according to Bergson and others, is more of a metaphysical question, is it not? Do artists measure their way into great works of art? This is where Einstein crossed over into philosophy and where he stayed until his metaphysical world, a quasi-Platonic world, became the standard universal definition of how the universe works. So if Einstein was playing fast and loose with his meta-science, so what? It works, right? The answer is, yeah, so far, it works. And because of that, and one more crucial point, the fact that Einstein put up a rigorous fight to keep his theory front and center of the argument. And that takes me back to the rowboat in the middle of some ancient Greek lake. There are three people in the rowboat. One of them is named Hippasus, the man who discovered irrational numbers and in turn disclosed his discovery publicly. He is about to be executed for his crime against harmony. This violent event brings to mind Einstein Bergson and the battle over relativity in the form of a close confidant of the physicist, a man named Andre Metz, a soldier and writer who would go on to be a war hero for the Allies during World War II. He described his feeling about why and how Einstein's theory would win out. Quote, A triumph of people, ideas, or theories seems to me to have a necessary precondition, a fight, and a bitter struggle, sometimes violent, The names that remain in history are those of men who have fought and who have fought in all areas, Now, it luckily didn't get violent in the battle of the soul of relativity, but at some point Einstein went from noncommittal about his theory to deciding it was the immutable law of the universe, and he kept up his offensive until it was widely accepted. Then later in his life, he would return to his skeptical roots and begin to loosen his positions. How Einstein fought was aggressive for the arena he was in, He used his immense fame as leverage in getting his fellow scientists to abandon Bergson and jump on his relativity train. No great revelation has occurred indicating a resolution to Bergson's questions concerning time and his own lived time of duration. People just stopped thinking about Bergson. They chose to stop thinking about him. Think about the world in relative terms, and you have to wonder if all the fighting and intractableness of Einstein unnecessarily extended his theory into the psychological realm of the public at large. And we are dealing with the consequences of that decision. It may not have gotten violent over relativity, but allegedly did in ancient Greece, and it most certainly did in Galois, France. And it may get so in our current political situation. The scary part is that the decision-making process can be based on completely made-up facts, and it won't matter once enough people choose to believe it. It will become real. And the non-scary part or at least the part that makes sense to me, as I prepare to enjoy the story of Everyday Galois, as I work my way through the historical credits of this particular story, from Uruk to the Deadly Beans, I see familiar names scroll on by. The unseen players in the making of our reality. The unheralded, unseen forces that make the world we understand. What is relativity but humanity's latest effort to create even greater orderliness? And look at what all that order has begot, a world seemingly teetering on the edge of absolute chaos. What is the inability to accept the 2020 presidential election, but yet another example of it from bit, the ability to continue to decide on a course of action 
that flies directly in the face of all available facts. No matter where you look, no matter who it is, no matter what the facts, people will always be creating their own truth and they will always be striving for order in order to feed the chaos. Now, it may sound paradoxical, but all I have to say to that is, no shit.